Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for the gifts of this season. We give you thanks for the gift of your word. And we pray that you would help us now to turn our hearts to your word, that you would open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. That we might, as we hear familiar words from a familiar account, that you would bring them to life in a new and fresh way in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. May you speak to us now of eternal things, things that matter, for the sake of and in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter. It's on page 857 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. There's three days left till Christmas, so we're all in the midst of uh, anxious preparations, I'm sure. The good news is that if you're feeling behind for this Christmas, you are, there's 368 days till next Christmas. So you're way ahead, if you look at it that way. But our passage this morning talks of, speaks of, Christmas preparations of a different sort. And so as we go to God's Word in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I invite you to listen to the Word of the Lord. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in the manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So indeed, if you are feeling a little bit worn down, like you're starting to run on fumes because of the mountain of details of preparation that uh, still lies between here and December 25th, um, I think we can take heart, and I invite you to take heart, as we look at these first few verses of um, Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. Because this time of year, there's this irony where we feel like it's supposed to be a very spiritual, peaceful, calm time of year of spiritual preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. But of course, for most of us, the, the non-spiritual preparation uh, takes over, and we have no time left. Um, so we feel that our, our Christmas preparation is anything but spiritual, And our passage this morning actually speaks right into that reality because it is, in some ways, the most unspiritual-sounding introduction to the birth of the Messiah that you could imagine. Luke takes up, of the seven verses we read this morning, five full verses are filled with logistical details that don't seem very Christmassy at all. We hear of Caesar Augustus issuing a decree for a Roman census. We learn who the governor of Syria is at the time. And we learn of the travel route that Joseph and Mary take to get to the place where they need to be to be registered. And at first glance, it would seem that there is very little 
that is spiritually edifying in these verses. We usually skip right through these to get to the shepherds and the angels and the good news of great joy, which will be for all people. But I think that we do a disservice if we skip too quickly past this, because there is good news in these verses for those of us who are feeling like our spiritual preparation for Christmas has been swallowed up with details and logistics and um, non-spiritual kinds of affairs. Because what Luke is trying to communicate to us with all of this detail is this reality, that God actually doesn't wait until it is a silent night when all is calm and all is bright to show up. He comes right in the midst of the real world that we live in, a world filled with political decrees and inconvenient travel and uh, disruptions and bureaucratic red tape. He comes right into the midst of our disorganized lives and our interrupted plans and our dysfunctional families and our bad economies and our distracted, disoriented hearts. So what Luke is setting the stage for is the realization that no matter what is going on in our hearts and world, no matter how distracted we may be, our lives are not too messed up for Jesus to show up. He doesn't wait until he has our full and undivided attention before he gets to work in the world and in our lives. This is the good news of the gospel, that he did not come for those who were paying attention, but for those who were running away. He didn't come for the healthy, but the sick, the lost, the unnoticed, the unlikely. And so I think these first few verses of what at first seemed to be just tedious historical detail actually serve to remind us that Jesus became incarnate. God became flesh. The Word dwelt among us in the midst of the messy real world of distraction and crowds and exhaustion. And so this is good news for those of us who are tired and distracted and frustrated by the crowds and overwhelmed by this mountain of details that is before us. We're reminded that in the first five verses of this passage, we're reminded that Christmas is not about God sweeping us out of details and distraction and noise of the world, but it's actually about God showing up in the middle of the details and distraction and the noise and the trouble of the world. That is what incarnation means, God coming to our condition to take up residence here among us. But I think Luke is saying actually something even more than that, not just that God can be present in spite of a mountain of details, but Luke is trying to show us how God is at work even through a mountain of details. We have all of these... um, sort of tedious-seeming details of geography and ancient Roman government, and we wonder, why is Luke taking the time to tell us all of this? And the reason is because he is giving us, wanting us to see these events and these details as glimpses of God's eternal plan, which was established before the foundation of the world, working itself out in the actual history of the world. Caesar Augustus was the perhaps one of the most powerful people the world has ever known. I looked at a map this week to remind myself of how big the Roman Empire was at this time, and it stretched all the way from the British Isles to modern-day Iraq. 
It was from Germany down to Egypt, all of North Africa, most of Southern Europe, and even into the Middle East. That was a huge stretch of land that Caesar Augustus was in control of. He was extraordinarily important. But his role in Luke's account is merely as a kind of footnote. Even his royal decrees are shown to be simply tools that are used by God to bring an unknown couple from one unknown small town at the edge of the empire to another small town at the edge of the empire so that the prophecy of Micah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, would be fulfilled. So Luke is telling us that God's sovereign power and purposes stretch all the way across the world and transcend even that of the most powerful human kings or princes or governors or presidents or conquerors. We see that the irony that Caesar thinks that he is establishing his rule by calling for a census to strengthen his military and strengthen his tax base, but the true Lord of Lords and King of Kings, who is on the throne of the whole universe, is actually establishing his kingdom in a quiet, unnoticed way, underneath all of the distraction. And he is using the mighty Caesar, calling him into his service without even knowing it. So we're seeing that his purposes stretch all the way across the world. God's arm, his power extends as far as the eye can see, but there's another detail in, this, in these verses that remind us that his purposes and power stretch not only across the world, but all the way back through time and history. We read in verse 4 that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Things that might just seem like a little detail are actually an invitation to remember the astonishing historic promises of God. Because it can take us back to the prophets like Micah who had foretold that the Messiah would come from the line of David, but actually it can take us back even further than that. It can remind us that in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David that his throne would be established forever, which is actually just a further... um, uh, uh, exemplific- or, uh, um, uh, clarification of what God had promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham that his offspring would bless all the families of the earth, which is itself uh, just a further incarnation of the promise of Genesis 3 when God promised to Eve that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. All of this is, is underneath this seemingly trivial detail of Joseph's family history. We see that this little trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was far more than just an inconvenient trip for expectant parents. It was actually the culmination of God's sovereign power at work through generations of Old Testament triumph and tragedy, through faithful kings and scandalous infidelities and families and marriages and births and nations and exiles and prophecies until, as Luke just so quietly and matter-of-factly puts it in verse 6, Oh, and the the time came for her to give birth. So we see that nothing from the imperial decrees of Caesar to the twists and turns of a particular family's story, nothing across space or throughout time is outside the gracious guidance and purposes of God. So we see in these verses that God is at work in spite of the mess of human life, and he's also at work through the mess of human life, which if you put those two things together, 
gives us a rather astonishing truth. Cliché, of course, is that the devil is in the details, but what Luke is trying to tell us is that God is in the details of our life. And if this is true, if this is how God works, then all of a sudden, all of our everyday life is now resonating with divine possibility. There are no details that don't matter. We can look for God in every moment, every encounter, even every interruption and disruption and frustration that comes our way. Because we know that God has revealed himself through the Christmas story to be the Lord who is in control and working for redemption in all kinds of details and circumstances and moments that we miss. Matthew puts it this way, quoting Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is what the message of Christmas is about, that God has come to be with us. He is with us at every moment. He is at work in every circumstance, even the royal decrees of Caesar Augustus, even the interrupted travel uh, of a young couple. He's at work. We are never alone. We are never outside his reach or his gaze, and nothing and no one can stop his plans from being fulfilled. And yet, how easy it is to go through life uh, oblivious to this reality. We can go through the Christmas season so distracted by these details, so oblivious to God in those details, that we completely miss what's really happening. And when this happens, I think we slip into a default spirituality, and we assume that God is far off or uninvolved in the hustle and bustle of life on earth, that he doesn't really care about the details, not concerned with those small matters of our lives, that he doesn't intervene or work in the world, which is, in other words, a default spirituality that is the exact opposite of what Luke is trying to communicate in these first few verses of chapter 2. This is the opposite of a God who shows up and works in the mess of the world. And so what happens when we forget about the fact that God is in the details of our lives, those distractions shift from becoming the way in which we see God at work to becoming the things in which we put our hope. And so we put our hope in the work of Caesar, political arrangements, our family background, where we live, how our family life unfolds, all of these details that Luke is inviting us to see as being under the gracious providence of God and the means through which his plan is working out in our lives. For us, they become all important. The other irony of these passages is that um, Luke is showing how the birth of Christ turns upside down the things that matter. So Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar took on divine uh, uh, presumptions. He allowed people to worship him as divine, and so Caesar Augustus became known as a son of God, son of Julius Caesar, the son of God. And he claimed that he was bringing through this enormous empire of Rome, that he was bringing peace to the world. And so all of this would be clear in the minds of of Luke's original readers, that Caesar Augustus claimed to be a son of God, that he claimed that he was bringing peace to the world. And all the while, Luke is inviting us to notice that what's really happening is underneath this and through this, God is bringing the true son of God who can bring true peace to the world 
through all of these details. What seemed to matter all of a sudden becomes a tool through which God is bringing forth what really matters. And so this is an enormously powerful possibility for our lives as well because it invites us to look at our lives, look at the plans that have gone sideways for us, look at the details that have us overwhelmed, the distractions that are clamoring for our attention, and ask ourselves where and how the God of Christmas might be at work in the midst of that. It's probably not that we are traveling at nine months pregnant to our fiancé's hometown to stay with our in-laws because a pagan emperor wants to strengthen his rule. But we all have our own details that are before us, that are invitations to distraction that cause us to doubt God's presence or miss what he's up to. But Luke is telling us that as unlikely as it might seem, God still shows up in the very midst of all of this. In fact, he may be using these details They may be the very way that God is bringing about his plan in our lives. Of course, we remember that he might be doing this by turning upside down what matters and what is important to us, the Caesars of our lives, reminding us that what we think is powerful and important and significant is actually the way in which God is bringing us to the manger where the true Son of God, the true Prince of Peace can be found. And so he may be leading us in a direction that we never expected to take us where we really need to be. God may be using a frustrating situation in your life to refine you, to become the person that he wants you to really be. But one thing is for certain. If God is using details, if he can use details like a census decree from the emperor of the Roman world to accomplish a promise made thousands of years before, we can trust him to be at work in the unlikeliest of circumstances in our own lives. And we can open our eyes to see how he might be active and at work and present. How the word might be dwelling in the midst of our lives. Because if we can find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, we can find him anywhere. And of course we remember that he was later wrapped in grave clothes and laid in a tomb. But just as he didn't stay in the manger, he didn't stay in the tomb. And so the message of Christmas is not only about something that happened when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. It's about something, someone who is risen and alive and active and at work today. Someone to whom all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And someone who wants to know us and wants to be active in our lives, wants to love and serve and save us. This has the potential to utterly transform the way we see what seem to be medial, tedious details in our lives. They no longer are meaningless. They no longer are simply noisy distractions, but they are the setting in which God can dwell among us, can make his presence known in our lives, full of grace and truth. And so we are reminded this morning that the God who came in the days when a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered is the same God who came, as promised, from the house and lineage of David. This God who came wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger cannot possibly be a God who is distant and removed and uninvolved and uninterested in the details of our lives. This God is a God of the details, overseeing them, working through them. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
That's the story of incarnation. God is with us in this life and in the life to come for all who believe. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you in the details and distractions and disruptions of our lives. And especially as we enter this distracted, disrupted week, we pray that you would be present, that you would make yourself known, and that you would do your work in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and let us sing together.